Hi, everyone, and welcome to IJ Notes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. This is Taylor with the IJNet team. In this episode, we're going to dig into the ways the COVID-19 pandemic is threatening press freedom around the world. These threats take the form of physical and political attacks on journalists, the criminalization of journalists' work, restrictions on free access to information, and increased surveillance. To better understand the press freedom landscape, ICFJ Global Director of Research Julie Pacetti interviews Professor David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression, and Dr. Courtney Ratch, Advocacy Director at the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. This podcast was adapted from a webinar on the topic, which was part of the ICFJ and IJNet Global Health Crisis Reporting Forum, which was formed to help journalists responding to the pandemic. If you have not heard of the project and want to get more involved, you can learn more at icfjandijnet.org. Now, let's take a listen. So what can journalists and news organisations do about these threats? What do they need to know about them? Uh, how can they protect themselves from them? And how do they ensure transparency and accountability in government when life and death are not the only things at stake here? Just if you can give us a picture of the threats as you see them currently posed by the responses to the pandemic, what do you think are, are the most important challenges that we need to focus on? Sure. So I would start by saying first, um, what is what are the standards that we're looking at? I think that we all recognize that in time of a, a public health crisis, that um, that there will be some potential for restrictions that we would never accept in other circumstances. And in fact, under international human rights law, which really provides for a robust freedom of expression the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, there's still the possibility for states to restrict that when it's provided by law and when it's necessary and proportionate to protect public health. So, so there is a framework for restriction, but, but I think what we're starting to see, or we've seen over the last several weeks, are concerns that are arising in a number of different areas which suggest either that states are not pursuing necessary restrictions or they're pursuing restrictions that are simply disproportionate to the nature of the threat. I would mention five that are real challenges right now. One is access to information that's held by public authorities. So freedom of information laws, are those um, still being uh, applied and implemented as they should be, particularly in a moment of public health crisis? To what extent are public authorities actually sharing information that is important for uh, the confrontation of the, of the virus? Two, what about access to the internet? There are internet shutdowns around the world um, or the slowing of speeds in a place like Kashmir, for example, that are having real harms on, on public health. And then we can also think about that in terms of the digital divide people in places of poverty where they don't have ready access uh, or minorities or women who don't have access to the internet. To what extent are, is that being provided to them? As you mentioned, promotion and protection of journalism. There are a number of places where we see journalism reporting on uh, COVID-19 being essentially criminalized. Then there's public health disinformation, which I'm sure is a big topic that we'll wanna talk about. You know, To what extent 
can governments, should governments be addressing disinformation out there? And then surveillance. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, a good categorization of the major challenges as, as I see them. From your point of view as well, uh, Courtney, what does CPJ regard as the biggest threats? Well, linked to the issue of the criminalization of journalism, which we are seeing, you know, pick up new speed and gain new dimensions with the whole idea of false news or fake news now being applied to coronavirus. These laws are then in place, which allow for the arrest of journalists. In addition, we're seeing physical attacks by both you know, governmental authorities as well as the public. We're also tracking, in addition to physical attacks and harassment, um, online harassment of, of these journalists. It's a perennial problem, and of course it brings on new dimensions when most journalism now, of course, is taking place online. We're seeing the restrictions on access, which you already mentioned. Um, this is particularly interesting to think about for freelancers, the challenge that not having the backing of a news organization or say accreditation can pose. And we're also looking at, you mentioned issues of surveillance, but also content moderation and licensing of media. Let's dig into some of those issues that you've both raised now. Um, and firstly, if I can come back to you, um, David, and now you gave us a broad overview of, of some of the challenges that are occurring. Are there any states um, that you have particular concerns about that you're able to uh, point to, um, to, to give us an illustration tangibly of some of the, the, the issues that are coming up for you? You know, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint where there are particular countries that are doing worse than others, but maybe I could mention two areas where I'm, I've been especially concerned. So one is the use of emergency legislation in order to to say, look, we're in such an emergency that normal freedoms are not available. Um, we see this in Hungary already. So you're starting to see this kind of real uh, aggressive use of emergency legislation to do the kinds of things that, again, that Courtney was describing, like um, restricting the access of media to government officials. Um, we also see that in the context outside of emergency legislation. I mean, we've seen you know, in a number of different places, um, governments basically saying only these journalists can show up to our press briefings. Uh, or we see ongoing attacks on journalists, verbal attacks, right? So, you know, even in the context of the United States where I'm sitting today, um, you know, we've seen the president of the United States attack individual journalists. And, you know, part of it is an attempt to shape a narrative around the coronavirus that is you know, highly politicized, but it's also an attempt in many places around the world, an attempt to intimidate journalists you know, not to ask the hard questions. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize that you know, much like after a major terrorist attack or 9-11 you know, or the Christchurch bombing or, or something like that, or the, the massacre, it's, it's very difficult for many people, even for activists and for journalists, to ask hard questions about what government is doing in order to protect the public. And so I think some, uh, some officials we're seeing are, are capitalizing on that. And it's important for us to identify those situations. And I've just mentioned a couple. We can you know, mention many, many others. I mean, yes, we could add many other countries to, to that list. Courtney, what about um, your observations? We, we, you mentioned some of the issues uh, with particular countries before. 
um, David there has has uh, raised the case of um, US President Donald Trump. Now, CPJ is a US-based um, international organization. What's um, CPJ's perspective on some of these debates, but in particular, how you respond uh, to domestic challenges as well as the global ones? Um, I mean, basically, we have to treat the United States as we would any other country. And, you know, we always have. But here in the U.S., what we're seeing is, once again, the highly problematic uh, and detrimental impact of anti-press rhetoric from the president and others. And the reason that this is problematic is because, um, you know, it sends a signal globally. It is undermining to journalists who are on the front line, literally risking their lives in some cases to bring us news. Um, it is further denigrating the idea that there is fact or truth. And this is the time when we need journalists the most because most of what the public is going to know about how to keep themselves safe, about combating the coronavirus, about understanding how their government is responding is going to be coming through the media. So journalists are more important than ever. We're also tracking with deep concern um, the issue of access to information, freedom of information, the idea that the FBI is saying that they're no longer going to honor records requests and limiting those during the coronavirus pandemic or requiring in-person requests. Um, you know, this is really problematic, but we are seeing this anti-press rhetoric ricochet around the world. Um, President Bolsonaro, President Duterte, you know, kind of the usual suspects. But in this case, the pillaring of the press, as I mentioned earlier, is also leading to public fear, which can lead to unsafe conditions for the press. I think it's important to note that it's not just journalists attacked, um, being attacked, is that it's, it's also whistleblowers and, and other people trying to share credible information in the public interest. We even had a case in the UK, uh, which is where I'm based, um, of hospital workers being told not to speak publicly about shortages of equipment and so on. And we're seeing, uh, in fact, just overnight, we saw the physical um, assault of uh, doctors protesting in Pakistan who were trying to raise awareness around these issues. A number of uh, civil society organisations have um, started to campaign around the rights of whistleblowers. And of course, that's an essential um, category of journalists' sources when it comes to being able to report um, in an authoritative and, and accountable um, way. What, what are your particular concerns about that and what do you think journalists need to be aware of? Yeah, it's, it's, a, really, um, it's a really important question. I, I, think, it's, I think it's important for, for people to see that, um, that the moment that we're in, you know, it didn't just start whenever February 1st, March 1st, right? Um, the virus in a way emerged into environments of censorship, and repression already. And, and I think uh, the risk, or at least one of the big risks, putting aside the very, very serious public health risks, one of the risks is that, um, that governments use this moment to accomplish some objectives that they've, uh, that they've held for many years. So one, for example, that you mentioned is pressure on whistleblowers and uh, journalistic sources. You know, and, and if you think about it in the context of how, um, how the surveillance, the public health surveillance uh, uh, tools will start to be expanded, I think we should be really concerned, and this should be something journalists should watch very carefully as to 
whether those are being used for the narrow purposes of things like contact tracing and, and real um, important public health interventions, or whether they're being expanded to interfere with the relationship between a journalist and her sources. And, you know, I'm really concerned that governments are going to start to use those tools of, of de defamation, whether it's criminal, criminal defamation yeah. or the tools of civil litigation, um, essentially slap suits, you know, to really um, crack down on public information, that those things are going to expand. Yeah. So this brings us into that territory of um, attempts to combat disinformation uh, and misinformation, depending on how you categorize what the World Health Organization has referred to as a, an infodemic, which is, you know, happening in parallel with the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the um, biggest things that we're tracking really ricocheting around the world. Uh, we saw in Iran, they announced prison sentences of up to three years for anyone who spreads false news. You mentioned South Africa, which um, the disaster management regulations criminalizes the publishing of any false statement related to COVID-19. Puerto Rico just in it announced that it's criminalizing any dissemination of, of um, disinformation with criminal prison penalties as well as uh, fines. You've got Taiwan, where you can face a maximum of, of three years. In Singapore, they have a false news law in place. It's not yet been used against journalists, but it's there. Bangladesh, um, Uzbekistan, Lesotho. I mean, I, I, we have, I have a whole list of yeah. these countries. But basically, the takeaway is it's happening around the world. You know, this idea of combating disinformation through criminal statute First of all, I don't think that there is any evidence that that works. Who decides what's false? Um, how do you know whether it's false or simply not no longer the advice or the correct information? I mean, one of the things that stands out about this virus is that it's novel, which means yes. we don't know a lot yeah. of the information. We don't have a lot of the facts. You know, I think we need to look at alternative mechanisms to staving the flow of disinformation and not trying to put journalists in prison for that, especially because prison could amount to a death sentence with yeah. coronavirus, right? You cannot social distance in prison. They don't have good hygiene. Many prisons, as in, for example, Egypt, your family has to bring you food. So in some cases, they prevented um, public visits, which means they're, you know, it's just a terrible situation. So not only should we not be criminalizing this, we should not, we should be letting all the journalists out of prison. Yeah, some excellent points. Um, David, can I get you to comment um, on the, the sort of social media aspects of this? So there's a couple of things happening um, that have been, you know, pretty widely reported. The first is, you know, because of the, the virus because of the lockdowns around the world and the need for social distancing. Uh, you know, many of the content moderators around the world, you know, those who are basically, you know, subcontracted out by the companies to do the, to make the decisions as to what information can stay on the platform and what must come down. Many of those people have been sent home and because of different privacy concerns, allegedly, uh, a lot of that content moderation isn't taking place. It's being done by automation. Now, um, and the, the companies have been pretty aggressive. I think, generally speaking, in a positive way in addressing the, the, um, the kinds of disinformation that can be harmful to people's health. 
But I think it's really early that we do not know the extent to which automation, and you know, Facebook ad admitted when they mentioned this publicly that they were gonna make mistakes. But we don't know the full extent to which automation will result in the taking down of content that is really important for people to see. We don't have too much uh, transparency into whether governments even now are making demands on the companies to restrict information about the spread of, of the virus uh, in communities. And I think you know, the, the companies have a real responsibility to make sure that what they are doing is consistent with their obligation to, to respect the human rights of their users and to respect the political freedoms and freedoms of, of expression and other freedoms that, that the public holds as well beyond their platforms. So I think that you know at this moment, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uh, opacity around what's happening on the platforms. And it's gonna be essential for there to be more clarity about what's happening. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we wouldn't be the first to observe that it, it's probably noteworthy that uh, when it came to political disinformation and disruption to democracy, um, the platforms were not as quick to act as they have been now, even in the, the context of the lockdown that, that you're referring to there, David. But um, these are uh, some questions to come back to, in fact, about how we, we can collectively uh, respond. I just want to take um, some more questions uh, from... Uh, our audience now. Um, and we have one from a freelancer who says uh, he'd, be, he'd like to know uh, if he has the same or equal right to be reporting as a staff reporter with an outlet. And if so, um, and I'm asked what outlet I'm with, I want to be armed with the response that um, boosts my chances to be allowed to report. Um, I think that's one for, for you, uh, Courtney, in particular. Do you have suggestions there? Yeah, so it really depends on what country you're working in. You know, we don't have, for example, in the United States, a definition of a journalist. In some countries, for example, in India, they are requiring a press card or some sort of um, proof that you are you have an assignment. Uh, so that can be really challenging for freelancers. I mean, you know, what I would do is try to get a press card if you can, for example, from the frontline freelance register, which you know, obviously they're also in quarantine, so they're not printing cards, but think about joining a group like that or like your, you know, local Society of Professional Journalists chapter or whatever the syndicate in your um, town is or other uh, freelance groups like the Culture of, a Culture of Safety Alliance, ACOS Alliance. Think about bringing clips with you to show that you have been published. Um, if you do have an assignment that you've been given, you could bring that. And definitely make sure that you are reporting in a safe and smart way. We have a bunch of safety resources in almost 40 languages on our website, cpj.org backslash COVID-19. Take a look at that, stay safe, and think about, you know, what you can find out, you should find out whether or not journalists are exempt from quarantine in the particular locality that you're in so that you understand, you know, whether or not you're potentially breaking um, a regulation or not and be prepared to address, you know, why it is that you're out there reporting and what you're doing to keep yourself safe. Um, we have another question that um, helps us move in the direction I think we now need to take this conversation, which is how do we respond to these challenges collectively as a community of journalists and freedom of expression advocates, particularly looking longer term? I mean, we've already had 
during this conversation, uh, references made to the potential long-term impacts of some of the measures that are being put in place now. Are we well enough prepared as a freedom of expression community to deal uh, with the threats that might be ongoing? Do either of you want to comment on that? I mean, I, I would jump in on that for on a couple of things. So one, protect, do what you can in the short term to protect the potential long-term implications. What do I mean by this? Think about the digital security and the confidentiality of the communications that you're having with journalists. So, you know, uh, we hope that there will continue to be whistleblowers, but think about the fact that that will probably be happening purely electronically now, right? Digitally, probably not going to meet that person in, in person during a, a social distancing um, guidelines. So you need to make sure that you are taking the precautions to protect the confidentiality of your sources and your communication. That's one like very concrete thing that you personally can do. But I think also we are seeing some good reporting on, on what is in these emergency laws. How long do they last? Um, are there sunset clauses? Did they report to the United Nations as required? I'll give you the answer to that one. It's no. Uh, you know, so we can be advocating for things like that. And I think that we are, we, we have seen, I think, quite quickly in our community a coming together to push for the basics, the basic principles that we know need to be put in place. Necessary, proportionate, um, you know, sunset clauses, limited in scope, because it's not about restricting what governments can do to legitimately combat the virus. It's making sure that they don't go beyond that and use these new powers in a way that was not meant to be authorized. And journalists can help with that by reporting on this, by doing those jobs. And I think we have to push back on efforts by the governments to say, oh, we can't provide information during this time. I have to say, I've noticed um, a kind of reluctance to critique uh, state responses to this, to this crisis. I wonder if either of you could comment on the need to continue to push for sort of robust and independent critical reporting, even at a time like this, um, and to ensure that it's not perceived to be, you know, unpatriotic, if you like. Um, there's a real need for journalistic solidarity around the mission of providing information, you know, verifiable information to the public. And in addition to the kind of the professional solidarity, there should be a continued push to seek information, even where, you know, you think it might not be the easiest ask uh, mm -hmm. at the moment. And where you're denied, you know, the regular tool tools of FOIA litigation, of freedom of information litigation are still available and those should still be used too. Um, and there should be support for them. Um, there shouldn't be any attack on those using those tools because we actually are in, you know, as you mentioned, the WHO talks about an infodemic. Like we're really in, an, in a situation where those who are involved in freedom of expression, advocacy, and in journalism have a real opportunity to help uncover the information that the public needs to get. And, and they should be using those tools. Yeah, where they're available. And so I'd just like to, to begin to wind up now. We can focus on perhaps what we can do as a community of journalists and a community of uh, freedom of expression advocates and researchers uh, internationally. Um, Courtney, I'll start with you. Give us, give us something that you've seen that you think might be instructive for journalists wanting perhaps to work with one another or even independently on investigations. Well, we have seen success on some intractable issues like impunity, for example, um, when journalistic outlets band together. So forbidden stories, for example, which continues the investigations 
of journalists who are murdered, um, like Daphne Caruana Galizia, for example. You know, I think these, I think there are many more collaborations taking place. I think when, if we think about how journalists can band together to require the government to provide proactively information in a digitized form to address the current situation that we're in, hold some promise. Um, I think another thing that we really need to see solidarity in is, uh, as David mentioned, when there are attacks on journalists. And one of the most profound ones is the, you know, 250 journalists who are behind bars mm. for doing their job. Um, they need to be released. I mean, all political prisoners and prisoners of conscience should be released. Yeah, David, we have a question from a colleague at UNESCO who wants to know what UNESCO and other UN agencies could most uh, effectively do in terms of the way they're responding. And I'm glad to hear them ask that question. So what would you like to see done there? How could that, mm. that work be ramped up? So in terms of what, um, what the international organizations and international community can do, I think the first thing uh, is to be available to, uh, to hear complaints from individuals and organizations from around the world. I think it's been, uh, it's been interesting and important for top leaders, um, including uh, Dr. Tedros at the WHO, to emphasize in their public statements that as important as the public health measures are, the human rights that everybody enjoys do not simply evaporate in the context of any kind of emergency. Um, and certainly the freedom of opinion and the freedom of expression should be understood as part of the effort of confronting coronavirus. And I think we need to hear that message over and over from people in leadership positions, whether in government or in intergovernmental organizations. And it becomes really important that um, these interventions are urgently enacted, doesn't it? That uh, research is published quickly, that recommendations are issued um, with a degree of urgency. We can't be actually playing catch up uh, in six months time around freedom of expression, uh, threats that have become a reality. Right. And, and I would say that one of the areas where that's most important, because there will be so much pressure not to write about this, will be in the area of surveillance. Yeah. Um, Courtney, to come to you, you know, how do we get through this? Um, and if we can frame that particularly from uh, a rights perspective, you know, um, how optimistic or pessimistic are you uh, at, at this point? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic just because I do see that there is a lot of awareness about needing to think about limitations and restrictions and um, use cases and sunset clauses, whether we're talking about surveillance or emergency laws or other things, um, because there were some lessons learned from the, the so-called war on terror. Um, I don't think it's widespread enough. I think that part of what journalists need to do is do a really good job doing journalism so that the public understands the importance of their role and is on their side, because it's very hard to, I think, protect journalists' rights, and, and which are fundamentally the rights of the public to be informed. And also remember that, there, that despite the fact that it might seem like nothing else besides coronavirus is happening, in fact, there, everything else is still happening. We need to make sure that we're not forgetting about all, all the other stories during this yeah. time. But I do worry about all of these new technological capacities that, um, that many governments are now realizing are capable, that 
are capable of gathering this type of data, of doing this type of data analysis, of tracking these people, of using telecom data, um, geolocation, Bluetooth, all of these really sophisticated surveillance uh, approaches. When we create a capacity, it might be for one thing, but governments are going to want to use it for many other things. And so that's what I'm really worried about. I'm really worried about, you know, what are the new capacities we're creating and the new precedents we're setting? And what is that going to mean for the future? And that's why we cannot wait until this crisis is over. We need to put in the restrictions and the safeguards and the limitations now and um, make sure that this is not an extinction event for journalism because if journalism is extinguished, then so is democracy. Thank you so much to Julie, David, and Courtney for such an incredible interview. If you liked listening, you'll be happy to know that we have more webinars with experts in journalism, medicine, public health, and more in the IGNet and ICFJ Global Health Crisis Reporting Forum. You can learn more about it on both of our websites. We also encourage you to explore resources from CPJ on press freedom and journalist safety, and to check out the many other resources we have available on IGNet.org. We're working hard to support you during such a difficult time. You can also keep up on all things IJNet on Twitter, Facebook, and on Instagram, and stay tuned for more from IJ Notes. If there's ever anything we can do to help you, please reach out to us. And until then, stay safe. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>